Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond from the home of The Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest, a powerful female physician role model that I've known for years, Dr. Nisha Mehta. And uh, Dr. Mehta is a radiologist, a doctor, a trainer, a writer, a coach, and also a community developer and a community context creator extraordinaire with her two private Facebook groups. One is the Physician Side Gig Group, which has over 94,000 members currently. And the second is the Physician Community on Facebook, where she has 63,000. That's 150,000 doctor participants in her two Facebook groups. By the way, there's a million doctors in the United States. And what we're going to talk about since Dr. Mehta and I both have a catbird seat on the American healthcare industry. So she's there in the physician side gig group with doctors that are looking for a way to inject a little more purpose and meaning and perhaps cash into their practice. I'm sitting at thehappymd.com with doctors who are burned out of consulting coaches. Each of us have a viewpoint that is overlooking the whole of the U.S. healthcare industry from an outsider's perspective. When I say outsider, I mean it's not what you see from the CMOs and wellness champions that post on LinkedIn. We're always basically patting each other on the back for doing such a great job. Our perspective is a little bit different. And what we've been talking about for about the last half hour is how to leave you with an opinion on the state of the industry and some tools and some thought processes you might use to create for yourself a more fulfilling practice. And the title here is going to be Physician Boundaries and the Power of No, the word no. (laughs) No, no, We were just talking, Nisha, about is no a complete sentence? But uh, one of the things we could say is no matter how it is used, it's never used enough by doctors. 100%. Well, thanks, Dyke, for having me on the show. I am um, really excited to be here. I've also been following your work for many, many years. And I I agree with you that sometimes the conversations that are being had outside of closed physician spaces are not the same as the conversations that are being had inside them. And to some degree, that's to our detriment, right? Because people don't hear kind of what it's really like uh, to be a doctor every day. And you know, we all know it, we're all living it, we're all breathing it and um, dealing with those issues, but doctors are not complainers. um, And part of that is a good thing. And part of that is actually to our detriment. And along the lines of that concept of not saying no, right? There, There are reasons why that is a really big detriment to physicians in today's society. And it's something that's been ingrained into us from I don't even know how early, right? But I remember being a fourth year med student on my vascular surgery rotation and they told me to show up at five o'clock and I showed up at 4.30, right? Like that's what that's what we do. Um, and so kind of undoing that and, and trying to find your position of power um, now that you're no longer a trainee and, and really just trying to figure out 
how is it that I'm going to build this, this career that I want to be sustainable for the next 10, 20, 30 years, right? Like I don't want to leave. I love the heart of what I do, but all of these other things are making me feel like I need to leave. I think both of our answers is not, okay, great, leave. It's, well, let's find what you need to do differently so that you can do what you love doing. Yeah. And the way I describe it is each of us who's a physician stood at a fork in the road way back in the day where you had a choice. Would I go to medical school or do basically anything else? You chose to be a doctor. You chose to be a helper, a healer, a light worker. What you really pine and ache for is to make a difference with your patients when you're knee to knee behind the closed doors of the exam room. However, the first seven to 16 years is a medical education gauntlet that we all have to run where we learn the patient comes first and never show weakness. So from that point forward, we would never, ever, ever do anything that would make anybody think we haven't got what it takes or we need a, we need a break. In the military, they say rest is a weapon. The most rested force will win the battle. In, med in medical school and residency and in medicine practice, you can't say you need a rest because then you might be signaling that you don't have what it takes. It's a sign of weakness and something to be avoided, which is just crazy. Yeah. And now we've come through this huge pandemic and now into staffing shortages. And there's a lot of requests being made of you, the listener, right now that are unreasonable, but you may feel like you have no power and you can't say no. Right. I mean, I, I say this often, but I think the altruism of physicians is used against them on a daily basis, right? And at some point, we all want to do what's best for our patients. Nobody wants to do what's not best for their patients. But what if what's best for your patients is actually for you to say no and to set some boundaries, right? Because ultimately, we are all human. Ultimately, like the more you put on somebody's plate, the more likely things are to go wrong. And so if we are just at this point where the things that are being asked from us are unreasonable and they're actually detracting from patient care, they're detracting from career longevity, they're detracting from your ability to do this for the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, right? I mean, everybody is going to need a physician going forward. And the degree of attrition that we're seeing from the profession right now, as people just kind of see this as a black or white, like either I'm all in or I need to get out situation, there's more and more people trying to go out. Um, and I think that that's really scary from a policy perspective. I don't think we've done our patients any favors by kind of like going all in and then burning mm -hmm. out and, and then walking out the door, right? So for me, a large part of my work is really focused on how do you enhance that career longevity, right? And what do you need to do in your career such that you can do this for the next 10, 20, 30 years? And maybe your career doesn't look like the person whose portrait was in your medical school hallways, but you're going to do it on your terms and you're going to do it in a way that allows you to be able to be the best physician that you can for the longest amount of time that you can. And that it is, it's so hard for us to believe that we can't somehow just do that for 30 years and, and do it in the way that we originally started out doing it. But the system has changed a lot. So the idea that you're going to be able to do what you did or what you pictured yourself doing when you were in medical school and just keep riding that train forever and never get burnt out is becoming less and less of a reality. And we're seeing that at every level, right? It's not just female physicians that are burning out. It's not just early career attendings that are burning out, right? Like you're seeing people retiring early. You are seeing people cutting back. Um, the demographics of people in medicine are changing. There's more dual income families. Like 
people are juggling a lot of different things that that really are going to require reshaping of what we think a physician career looks like. And I think that hospital systems are very optimistic in thinking that they're going to continue to be able to fill their open spots with physicians who are going to do things the way that physicians 30 years ago did things um, and are quickly starting to realize like these people will walk. They are walking, you know, and that's a scary thing for everyone because uh, at the end of the day, patients need to be seen. So the question becomes, how do you advocate for yourself and how do you get that leverage within the system so that you can be the best doctor that you can be for for hopefully the long run? Yeah, through the medical education process, all you did was follow orders, follow the path, color inside the lines. And what we didn't realize, since it's just a survival contest, is if you were able to drag your broken heart and body across the finish line, you were free. But let me ask you, what role did you play in defining the job description you're currently on? Normally, we pull one off the rack. It wasn't designed by a doctor. It was designed to meet the financial specifications of the institution that employs you. So you taking your practice back, right? Taking your practices back and finding wiggle room inside that job description or another job is really important. And it's got to start with drawing a boundary. It's got to start where you say, I can't do that because that will compromise my ability to recover. And the demographics are awful. I mean, just awful. 45% of American doctors are over the age of 55. We're starting to see the boomers quit. And we were going to talk too a little bit about some of the things you were telling me earlier about the difference in men and women when it comes to quitting, retiring, being able to say no and things like that. I'd love if you would go into that in a little bit of depth. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I, that Dyke and I were discussing were just some of the statistics amongst female physicians, just because it's a good use case for what happens when people can leave. Right. And, you know, I think that women physicians have their own challenges um, and men or male physicians have their own challenges. And then some of them are shared. There's probably a lot more that are shared than, than are different, but there's a few key differentiators in the demographics of female physicians. Um, so one of them is that 70 to 80% of female physicians are actually married to other high-income professionals. And what that does is create a little bit of flexibility in how they approach their careers. And so what you're seeing is that a lot more of those people who want to be able to walk away can walk away, or they can change the way that they work or cut back to part-time. There's a little bit more wiggle room there. And what I worry about with a lot of our male physicians is that they can often find themselves in a place where they don't necessarily have that ability, right? Like they are the sole breadwinners for their families. There's a lot of people counting on them to be able to continue doing what they've been doing for a really long time. And so they carry a lot of that pressure. And there are certainly female breadwinners who are primary breadwinners or sole breadwinners for their families. So I'm not, I'm not making this an absolute thing, but when we look across the board, demographically, those male physicians and female physicians do face sort of different circumstances on the whole. And so the thing that we worry about, right, when you're looking at how many female physicians are actually leaving medicine, so 40% of female physicians will either cut back clinically or retire and quit medicine entirely within the first six years of finishing their training. And that is a very, very scary number when you think about the pipeline of physicians um, and the fact that over 50% of female or currently matriculated medical students are female. 
Um, so when you think about just pipelines in medicine and you think about the fact that, well, if this is what doctors are doing when they can do it, that is going to translate to the male physician population as well. It just may be on a different timeline, right? But if they're also retiring early, if they're also deciding to cut back, you know, what happens when you replace the 68-year-old physician who retires, who's been working 70 hours a week for his entire career with somebody who's saying, I want to work 50 hours a week for my career, right? The net FTEs that are in the system are just decreasing on a regular basis. And yet we have increased utilization of the healthcare system. We've got a baby boom generation that's retiring. We've got people living longer with chronic illness. We've got imaging volumes going up. We've got all these things that are happening that are actually increasing the need for medical expertise at a time where we are very actively taking away from physicians within the workforce. And that is from a policy perspective, absolutely terrifying, right? Like who is going to take care of us 15 years from now, 20 years from now, even five years from now? Um, so I think that that from a policy perspective is absolutely terrifying. But I also think on the other side, that is where physicians have leverage that they don't necessarily realize that they have. So many people, when you talk to them, feel as though you know they're replaceable because they've been taught that they are replaceable. And so they don't see those numbers in bulk and realize, hey, actually people need us. And hey, we can actually say no, and we can actually walk away from the table and what happens when doctors walk with their feet? You know, how does the hospital system sustain itself? How does the country as a whole sustain itself, right? When you start thinking on a macro level and policy, what is it that politicians and legislators and, you know, lawmakers need to be thinking about when they do these things that are very short-sighted that further jade physicians, right? So if lawmakers are saying, hey, we're going to take an 8% cut from physician salaries because we can, well, yes, you can, but also our physician practice is going to start saying, hey, maybe we're not taking Medicare anymore, or hey, you know what, my salary is going to go down to this amount, and I was already unhappy with what I was having before, and I'm financially independent now. I don't need to do this anymore. I see the trajectory that this is going in. I'm leaving, or I'm thinking, I'm starting to plan my way out. Those are the stories that we don't do a good job as a physician population of necessarily conveying to these stakeholders who are just always assuming that there will be some doctor who will fill every role that they need filled. Um, so I think it's really imperative on us as a physician population to make it clear that we do have boundaries and we do have breaking points. And there are times where we are going to say no and we are going to leave. And it's not because we're selfish and it's not because we're greedy. It's because we've been pushed to the limits and at some point we cannot do anymore and it's not good for patient care. It's not good for our career longevity and it's not good for policy as a whole to make short-sighted decisions about that. You know, physician salaries make up less than 1% or sorry, less than 8% of um, healthcare costs in this country. So cutting physician salaries by 8% doesn't even make a 1% difference in healthcare costs, but it's low hanging fruit. It makes people feel like they're doing something and they know the doctors won't fight it. So they do it, right? But for us, there's a very tangible effect on the workforce. And unless that is being made absolutely 100% clear on no uncertain terms to the people who are making these decisions, they will continue to make those decisions. So you know, I'm just such a big advocate of people sort of like telling their stories and telling how tangibly these things affect them because politics and media and advocacy is all about kind of getting the right person to hear the right story that makes them think, hey, this has got to change. So I guess that would be my 
part of this long diatribe will be to, to encourage everyone to kind of be open about those things, because that's advocacy in a way that you may not perceive it as advocacy. But every time that we say no, or every time we say this is a problem, because somebody out there is hearing it. Um, and it shouldn't just be your colleagues. And if you're lucky enough to still have a doctor's lounge, <laughs> it shouldn't just be your colleagues in that doctor's lounge, it should be the rest of the world saying like, oh, this is a problem, like we need to you know, it, physicians have such a PR problem and us getting out there and saying, these are real stories. This is really what's happening out there is really important to reshape that conversation for the state of healthcare and the state of physician well-being um, in this country. Well, let's get really granular. So let me create a scenario that's really common in my world as a physician coach. And I imagine it'll be echoed in what you've seen as well. You manned the front lines in the pandemic when, when the chips were down, you did everything that was asked of you by your employer, no matter whether they furloughed you or had you work double shifts or a COVID positive clinic or a non-intubated COVID ward in the hospital, it didn't matter. You did what you were asked to do. And now you're back in practice again, but your five doctor wing used to have six MAs and you've got three. Can't find an MA for love or money from any direction and your senior partner just quit. They could have quit before COVID, but like a good doctor, they ran towards the noise, manned the front lines. And now that the pressure's off, they're gone. So there's four of you, three MAs, seeing five docs and six MAs worth of patients. The patient load hasn't diminished. In fact, it's gone up a little bit. And just pause for a second and think about what you look like on the CFO's spreadsheet. You are a tight ship with a nice high profit margin. And notice they have no incentive financially to give you back your MAs or your providers. You may be being asked to actually increase your RVUs, increase the number of patients you see, shorten your patient visit length, and you may be totally fried. The challenge is right now that you're a single person down, you're going to be even more driven to continue to show up because, hey, who's going to see the patient? There's only five. Who's going to, who's going to take care of our staff? So the more people who quit, the less likely you are to quit. One of our mantras is don't be the last rat off a sinking ship. But the question is, how might you say, no, this is not acceptable? How might you raise your concerns in a way that they can be heard? And how can you find wiggle room in this job, assuming you don't want to leave and try and find a different one? Now, uh, Dr. Maida, we were talking about being able to say no collectively, like some version of collective bargaining together. Let's talk a little bit about more, more about how you would make that happen if that was your situation. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is sort of the prototypical situation in which doctors need to be coming together and saying like, we are collectively going to say this is not okay, right? All right, fine. You're asking us to do more work. You're also saving X amount of money. Why don't you distribute that money amongst us? And we'll talk about whether or not we can absorb that load, right? Well, now all of a sudden they're paying the same amount of money to have four people doing something as they could having six people doing something. Then they are incentivized to bring the six people in because there's a lot more leeway and a lot more bandwidth with six people, right? With four people, everyone recognizes that that is a very tenuous situation where if one person decides to leave for whatever reason, maybe it's not the money, maybe it's their spouse gets a job somewhere else, maybe it's they decide that they're retiring, whatever, right? But when you're running on a very, very lean margin in terms of what whether there's bandwidth to deal with an unexpected issue, it's always better to have more people on board. So again, 
I think one one thing that a lot of physicians make the mistake of doing is accepting more work when somebody else leaves. Um, I do think that that is a situation where the entire group has to say, well, if you want us to absorb this load, you will pay us accordingly. We're going to be taking more call. We should be paid more for that call. We're going to be taking more patients on. We should be paid more for that. And if not, we are not going to, you know, one of the things that I hate seeing in a contract um, when I'm looking at physician contracts is this call will be split equally amongst the members of the call pool. That is a horrible statement to have because if everyone leaves and there's one person, technically by contract, you can be done. You can do all of it, right? Right, right. If there's only two people left in a group that used to be six, you can be Q2. Like there should be a maximum amount in your contract that says, fine, call will be split equally between everyone that's in the call pool, but it will not exceed one in four or one in five or whatever is reasonable for that job that you take, right? And then that gives you leeway to then when these situations come up to say, hey, I was told I wasn't going to take call more than once in five days. I recognize you are in a tight situation and you need coverage. I don't want to leave you hanging but also recognize this is a short-term thing and this is my rate for doing that extra call. And I would not do that rate as a number that's break-even. I would do that as extra because guess what? It's taking away from your free time. It comes at more of a value and you're going to set that rate a little bit higher so that they are incentivized to find somebody to fill that hole that takes the same rate that you take for your normal call, right? Well, and here's here's a different conversation to have. And I remind people of this all the time. If you had fractured your pelvis on the way to work today, how long would it take them to get a locums in to fill your slot? And why isn't there that urgency when we lose somebody to some form of attrition, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this sort of pressure to do more with less resources, whether it's less people, whether it's less money, whether it's less time, whatever it is, right, is something that we all need to fight back against. And it's, you know, I think we have this tendency to sort of like as physicians have it be very us versus them and like they're the enemy and they're greedy and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, they're all running businesses. They're going to do whatever they can get away with. It's not necessarily that it's like this evil empire or awful people. It's just they have no incentive to give you more money unless you demand that you get more money, right? They have no incentive to make things better for you unless you tell them this is not working, I will not do this. And so I don't think you go in there guns blazing, confrontational, unless you're really truly willing to walk away from the table and quit the job. But I do think you say, hey, this is a problem for me. I'm going out of my way to meet you halfway. What are you doing to meet me halfway? And I need to feel that good faith if I'm being asked to do something that you are also going to come to something. And if your answer is, this is just what I'm telling you to do, then I'm going to tell you no. Right? So, there we go. She got to the no. I was going to say, this is a no, folks. Right. This is what no sounds like in negotiations up the chain of command. Yeah. yeah. Then this is a no. And, and remember, whenever you're being asked to doing something, you know, we're going to we're going to change your visit like for 30 to 20 minutes and you don't have any flexibility. Whatever it is where you're having autonomy taken away, you don't have to say yes or no in that conversation when it's announced to you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You you can say, I'll think about it and get back right. to you in two weeks. I call it a quick no, slow yes. Okay. So, and the other thing is, if you're not feeling the love where you are, if you're not feeling appreciated where you are, especially yeah. if they're telling you you're losing money for the system or any of that hoo ha, yeah, go interview. 
I think in this day and age, if you are not feeling like this is your ideal job, ideally a person would be doing a couple of interviews a quarter to establish two things. Are there other workplaces out there that look like they could be a better experience for you as a provider? And number two, what's your value in the market? Do people want you more than they want you here? And it's really easy to determine those things if you interview. Not that you're leaving, but you're right. just trying to get an independent opinion upon what you're worth to the system. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that is really like always having a plan B and a plan C or just having leverage, right? Um, is just so important not because you want to constantly be waving this threat over your employer, but just for yourself and your sanity, just to know, like, I'm not in this golden handcuff situation where I can never walk away because this is the only thing that's going to fulfill needs X, Y, and Z is really, really important, right? And so people always ask me, like, do you need a side gig? No, nobody needs a side gig. You make great money as a doctor, but it is a valuable tool in your toolbox if you've got some other income coming in and you're not solely dependent on one thing to make ends meet, you know, or do you need to be able to, there's this whole spectrum of, you know, what you need and what you want. Right. And I think all of us want the ability to have the autonomy to do, to have our careers on our terms and do the things that we want to do. And so what is it that we need to equip ourselves with that gives us the power to say, no, thank you. It's okay. Not again, not in a mean way, just I'm sorry, that lemon isn't worth the squeeze for me. I'm going to elect to have the time with my family. I'm going to elect to do this. This is not something that you can incentivize me with. You know, And I've said that to employers multiple times throughout the course of my career where I say, you know what, you can keep throwing money at me. It's not about the money right now. Like, No matter how much money you pay me, I have decided this is what is important to me. And I'm going, I'm going to say no to this every day of the week. And it's not because I'm being selfish. It's because I've decided that this is just something that I need. If you want to incentivize me, here are some things that you could give me that are consistent with that need. And so, okay, you're asking me to come in for a weekend that you hadn't asked me to come in before. Are you giving me time off during the week so that I can have a day off with my family on that day instead? Everyone, we were talking earlier about how sort of, you know, everybody likes to say no is a one word sentence. I always see no as the starting point for negotiations, right? I'm going to tell you I don't like that offer. Here's what I'm going to tell you would work for me. Then you decide whether or not that's something that's palatable to you or not. Not palatable, that's okay. We're both happy doing what we're doing right now. But I'm telling you, this is not going to work for me. I'm also telling you this will work for me. You do with that information what you want. That's what no sounds like in a negotiation. Just a couple of quick data points. So 55 and over, that's 45% of American physicians right now. It's about 450,000 doctors. There's always been a projection in 2030 of 120,000 doctor shortage in the US of A. And what I can tell you is that this is an enormous, what they call seller's market, meaning the person looking for a job is in control here. And what I'll tell you is that in our network, about 70% of doctors that come into a coaching relationship recover without changing jobs. The other 30% can recover in a single job search if you interview correctly and maintain your position of being in charge. It's not like med school where it's whether or not they're going to pick you. It's about whether or not you will pick this opportunity as a good match for your ideal job description. But if you're grinding it out, not getting enough time with your family, 
being told you're losing the system money, having autonomy and time taken away, pay cuts, staffing shortages, and you're not getting the answers that you want from your leadership team, it's time to interview and make sure that you understand you're worth more, perhaps someplace else than you are right here. Yeah. I, I, it using that that's like a mic drop right there that I don't want to I don't want to interrupt <laughs> but, but, uh, I also I think that it is like we are so ingrained to think that somebody else has the power in this relationship um and we've grown up through these like hierarchies where we just say you know we're never at the top of that totem pole but the fact is is that our expertise is in short I mean, there are practices who have been trying to hire for many, many years who are having a hard time. There are hospitals who have been trying to hire for many, many years who are having a hard time. You know, the more flexible you are with your life and the ability to walk away from one job and go somewhere else or start in a different place, or those are all things that are going to make you realize that you can find whatever job you want as long as you're willing to be flexible on certain things. And I think that we don't necessarily do the math enough in our heads to think about how few doctors there are relative to the needs of this country. Um, I sometimes go to these like financing conferences or these health innovation conferences or health tech conferences, and everybody's like, oh, we're just going to find a doctor to do this. And they like write these numbers down and they like give me these pretty pitch decks. And I look at them and I'm like, are you crazy right now? Because right. like no doctor is going to take this what is the doctor's incentive to take this deal? Oh, you want the doctor to pay for the software within their practice that then they're, they're then going to create extra work for themselves and their MAs are going to have extra work and it doesn't even like increase their reimbursement, but you're going to tell them that it increases patient satisfaction and they're somehow going to hand you over a six-figure amount every year for your like app that you're building that's going to change the world? No, like it doesn't work like that. So I do think that there are a lot of ideas out there that people just think the doctors will say yes to, um, or doctors will be, or systems will be able to force down doctors' throats. And so then they go to the healthcare CEOs and the healthcare CEOs, this is a great idea, right? Like I was at one of these conferences where, <laughs> you know, they had all the right words and the right pitch decks and, and the CEO was just kind of eating it up. And I like turned around and looked at the CEO. And I was like, what do you think your physicians are going to think of this proposition? And he's like, well, it doesn't sound like it's that much of a lift. And I was like, what incentive do they have to incorporate this into their practices? Do you really think that this is something that they're going to be happy with? Or is it just one more thing that you're asking them to do at a time that, you know, and, and what does it really improve? You just want the headline that says you have this new technology, but in reality, it doesn't help patients. It doesn't help the doctors. It creates more work for the, the teams. Just pause for a second here, right? And I think that those are the sorts of things that doctors need to be reminding you know, other people all the time. There are just, there's a lot of really great salespeople out there right now. There's a lot going on in health tech. It is 20% of our GDP. There is a lot of people trying to get their hands in that bucket in terms of profits and people will always find things to pitch. And I think it's really up to the physicians to kind of come out there and say, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. Not hey, we're going to complain about this, but not say no. Well, you're being asked to document something that has no standing on anything, you can just say, I'm sorry, this doesn't change billing. This is not something that is regulated or required by any commission anywhere. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do it. Or if we go a little bit further, again, getting granular, if you're being short-staffed 
and pushed so hard that what's happening is not an inconvenience. It's not just simple exhaustion. It's devolved itself into safety or quality issues. Your reputation, your livelihood is on the line because if somebody goes down in a setting like that, they're still going to sue you regardless of what kind of conditions were in play at the point where you saw that patient made that decision, did that procedure. So right. for your own your own career and for your family, you got to say no sometimes when the situation is actually unsafe. And I see people being put in that kind of a situation all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, we the number of doctors who have posted things like, you know, I'm basically acting like the MA and the doctor and the, you know, this person, whatever. I mean, when resources get stretched thin, that's when bad things happen, right? And I think it's, again, one of those things where doctors need to say, this is hurting patient care. This is, in the long term, a really bad thing. And it's almost that you got to keep on bringing up that 30,000 foot view. And what is this doing in the long run to the healthcare system? Is this sustainable? Are we actually doing right by our patients? All of those things, because that's how you advocate for yourself. It's how you advocate for your patients. And ultimately you're actually advocating for the healthcare system too, to not have these horrible stories that are splashed across like the news headlines because X, Y, and Z happened at, at this medical center when everybody knew, right? Like, you, when you hear the postmortem analyses on those sorts of situations, it's like everybody knew that this like was a setup for disaster, right? Everybody knew that the idea of having somebody who was a float person covering this thing would mean that things were getting missed, right? When you're on the ground, you know what things are a bad idea, and if you, it's it's also up to you to kind of convey why it's a, why it's such a bad idea and exactly what it's going to lead to um, if you establish that as a precedent. Because on the other side of things, people are just kind of like, well, it seems to be working. Like, that's all they see. You're still seeing the patients. Right. Yep. Patients are getting seen. Things are getting done. Everything's working. And maybe on the inside, everybody's falling apart. The MAs are all threatening to quit because they're being overworked. You know, when one person leaves the system, it puts strain on everybody else within that team and it makes them more likely to leave. And then it makes the other person more likely to leave. And then, you know, that all rolls downhill. Um, and people don't, doctors do not, you know, it's funny because you, you talk about like that kind of quiet quitting that is so much of a phenomenon these days. And doctors don't really do that. They go full force and then it's very binary. Then they're one day they hit their breaking point and they're done. They're out it's over. And there's no warning. And then everybody else is kind of dealing with the aftermath, right? And so when you start seeing that this is going to be the reason that I quit this job going on, it's important to go to somebody and say, listen, like this is a problem. And this is going to be the reason why I'm not here a year from now. It's going to be the reason why three other people in our department are not here a year from now. Like you need to change this. And that sort of like group advocacy where a whole group can come together and say, we are not doing this. This is unsafe. This is whatever. Like, this is a ridiculous ask of us that makes no sense and is going to translate to bad patient outcomes. You want to put it down on paper. You want to write these things down. You want to send those emails. You want to like make it clear what your stance is about things that you see happening within the system. And so many times people are just afraid of being labeled the troublemaker or the, I'm going to put a target on my back, whatever. But 
the fact is, is like, I mean, most people know when a job is not going to work out long term, and then they try to salvage and they try to salvage and they try to salvage. But if you already see the writing on the wall, like this organization does not respect my expertise, this organization does not pay me adequately. This organization has no desire to ever X, Y, and Z, which is really important to me. There is that whole thing about when somebody shows you who they are, believe them, right? And start figuring out how you're going to walk away. Exactly. Exactly. Start figuring it out. Because I mean, most people see the writing on the wall from many miles away. And but they don't act on it because they think that if they just change X, Y, and Z, or if they just get through one more year, but they find themselves in the same conundrum a year from now, like nothing is going to change if you don't say no. So boundaries are good. Boundaries are good to protect patients from unsafe practices. Boundaries are good for the staff and the physicians to make sure that the healthcare environment doesn't burn out the workers and result in more and more short staffing from attrition and loss of doctors who could continue, especially female doctors, who could continue to have a nice long career. And one of the ways that you recognize a boundary is when you have the thought that, hmm, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't sound right. It seems to be like I'm working too hard. Like maybe we've got some safety or quality issues going on here and saying, wait a minute, stop, take a breath and begin to figure out who you got to talk to to say no. Because yeah. the the definitive word, and you can put all sorts of you know, I took a look at this last night, Chuck, and I'm not so sure this is going to work here for the department. And for me, it means that I have to work 10 more hours and then I get to, so I'm going to say no. That's how you do it. It's the power and no. Yeah. I, and it's just something that we are so uncomfortable with as a physician population, but it would be so powerful and aggregate if we were all to just start saying no, thank you. Grab your partners and walk down there and say, no, we're going to draw the line here. And remember, the only reason that you're hesitant to say no in the first place is that what would have a single no earned you in residency? It would earn you kick out. You're gone. Yeah. Right? Never show weakness. You're not a resident anymore unless you are. And if you are a resident, say yes until you can get out. But the rest of us, you're not a resident anymore. So you have yeah. the ability to draw safe boundaries for a safe workplace and good patient care. Yeah. And I think that that's the biggest thing that we all have to realize is like, ultimately, this is a long game that involves patient care, that involves what we want this healthcare system to look like. And the more we let it deviate from that vision of what the right healthcare system should look like in the favor of profits or in the favor of productivity or whatever, the harder it's going to be to come back to something that is safer. And so I, I think all of us are hesitant to cause ruffles, but we also are all complaining about the way that things are, you know, like I always hear patients complaining about stuff. And I'm like, trust me. We are in the same boat, right? We understand. I agree with you. Like, this is not what we pictured when we came out of medical school or when we, you know, signed up for medical school. This is not what we want for you either. This is not what we want for your care either. And it's going to take a collective action by doctors and patients to say, we demand more from our healthcare systems. 
And we demand more from our lawmakers in terms of what they are protecting us from having to deal with and and some of these situations that we're seeing. So every time you feel bad about saying no, just think about what would happen if every doctor said yes to what you are being asked to do and what that would mean for patient care and what that would mean for safety and what that would mean for, you know, the sustainability of the healthcare workforce. And I think you'll feel a lot more comfortable saying no, thank you. Right on. So Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of the Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington. That's your Physicians on Purpose podcast with Dr. Nisha Mehta, MD. Now, Nisha's home website is Nisha Mehta, M-E-H-T-A, Nisha Mehta, MD.com. You can find her at the Physician Side Gigs Facebook group, the Physician Community Facebook group. Join 150,000 people that are in those groups with her. Nisha, thank you so very much for this conversation today. We're going to have to do this again sometime real Absolutely. soon. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and uh, for everyone out there listening. Thanks for taking the time. Yep. Keep breathing, everybody, and have a great rest of your day.